Y'all, this is a, the beginning of a new series. I invite you to get your study guides out. Um, those should help you, I hope, today. If, if For no other reason, they, they have the scriptures on them that I'm going to be reading and digging into today. Um, this series is called This is War. It's an intense title. It's an intense graphic as well, and that is uh, intentional because um, the premise of this series is that we are all engaged in a war, um, whether you know it or not, whether you've enlisted for it or not, you're in this thing. And if you don't know what I'm talking about, and if you don't really believe in this sort of thing, uh, in my opinion, you're probably losing. You're probably losing this battle if you don't know what you're fighting for or who you're fighting against. And I, if that's you, then no judgment. That describes most of us. Most of us have no idea what we're talking about, what the Bible's talking about when it talks about this war. Um, and, and so it's an important, I think it's an important thing to talk about, although I will say I struggled mightily uh, with this because uh, I spent most of my adult life laughing at Christians who say the things that I'm about to say to you today. But after my conversion, my sort of Holy Spirit moment six years ago, I've become convinced that what the Bible says about this is more trustworthy than what my own sort of pre-conversion intellect would have said. Um, and what Jesus says is more trustworthy than what I would say, right? And so you can't really ignore this stuff, this spiritual battle stuff. The Bible talks about the spiritual battles that we're facing all the time, um, even though most of us uh, don't fully understand it, it's there. Now, even if you don't understand it, you still feel it. I think this is why this conflict, this idea of good versus evil, is, uh, is true throughout just about every worldview in the world. Every religion, every whatever, every culture has some embodiment, some idea of what that battle might look like. And so you get it, you feel it, you know there's a struggle, you sense you're made to fight, but you don't know what to do with that energy. And this is especially true for men, but it's also true for women. But I, I just know the male experience is you've got this fight in you. You don't know what to do with it. And so what do we do? We watch football. We watch football, which is a sport that is designed to mimic war. It is. You've got like winners and losers, obviously. You've got like smoke a lot of times at games and you've got like, you know, drums. You've got um, two groups that are vying for territory. That's what football is. I mean, it's, you're trying to penetrate the enemy's territory, their land, and you're trying to defend your land against them and you're trying to move the, the chains, you know, and those chains sort of symbolize your advance. That's war. That's why it resonates so deeply with us, right? People laying down their lives and their brain cells a lot of the times to play a game that mimics something that we all sense we were created for. Now, I think that's misplaced um, manifestation of that instinct. I think, I think war itself is misplaced manifestation. Like, I mean like nation against nation. I think that's another way that we misplace that instinct to fight, to struggle, to win over the darkness. 
in the world. I think that's why we watch MMA. I think that's why we watch war movies, and war movies are always very popular. I think that's why we get into this stuff and read war books and watch war documentaries. I've been watching this stuff ad nauseum for several months now, and Pastor Gio, my wife, is just thrilled. She's just thrilled that I'm on this war kick. Uh, <laughs> and I've been watching all these depressing uh, uh, you know, documentaries on, on Netflix and everywhere else. But I, I, I've wanted to understand um, our instinct to fight. And I think it makes sense when you read the scriptures that tell us that we're created for this struggle. You're made for it, to fight. Not in a physical way, not with your hands or your fists or your weapons, not to kill. You're made to fight, but with your prayer, with your heart, with your, uh, the Bible, with your light, with your love. Like you're made to fight and it's supposed to be aggressive, but we have made Christianity into something nice and docile. And then we go to football games on Saturday and get our war out. And I think we've got it a little backward there. The phrase that is often used to describe what I'm talking about is spiritual warfare. I don't love the phrase spiritual warfare. I probably won't call this spiritual warfare throughout the next four weeks of this series. I don't love it for many reasons. The main reason I don't love it is because it gives us the impression that this battle is relegated to some separate sector of your life. Like you've got your life, your real life, your work life, your family life, your alone time, whatever, and then you've got spiritual life. And if you're a spiritual person, that's where you fight the spiritual battles. You fight the spiritual battles at church. You fight the spiritual battles over here. Everything else happens over here. And let's keep those lines clearly drawn. That's not the picture the Bible paints for us. Um, the best way I can, I've ever seen it really, described that the, the way the Bible talks about spirituality isn't as a separate sector, but more like what Tolkien describes in the Lord of the Rings trilogy. And if you haven't read the book, you've seen the movies where uh, where Frodo puts on the ring and then he sees the spiritual stuff that's happening all around him. Now the spiritual stuff is happening like overlaid with the physical world, but it's happening whether or not, whether or not Frodo has the ring on. He only sees it when he puts the ring on, but it's happening nonetheless, right? And so um, everything, in the Christian worldview, everything is spiritual. Your alone time, spiritual. Your prayer life, obviously, spiritual, but so is your time on the couch with your wife. Your marriage, spiritual. Your relationships, spiritual. Your career, spiritual. Your sex life, spiritual. One way or another, deeply spiritual. And so I hope that by the end of this series, you understand this battle a little bit more, the battle the Bible describes, and you can take it or leave it. I just want you to understand it more so you know what you're taking or leaving. I hope you understand a little bit better the, the enemy that the Bible describes, and I hope that you, if you accept the premise of the series, I hope you start to see every facet of your life as a spiritual uh, reality. And I hope you invite into the foxhole with you, your family and your friends to fight alongside you. And I hope if, if they're not quite there yet, I hope you lead them in that direction, that you lead them with more intentionality, you lead them with more force, you empower them to go and fight evil with their daily living. 
Because this is what the Bible says we are created for, to fight against the darkness. So I want you to imagine your heart as a battleground. I want you to see your friends and family in a foxhole with you. And I want you to think, if you're married, for example, I want you to think of your marriage um, as a theater of war. Some of you are like, I'm there. I'm, I'm there. I'm there. We're done. Let's go home. Mission accomplished. Uh, if you're there, you probably aren't getting what I'm saying. <laughs> if that's where your mind went, you probably already decided uh, who the enemy is. Uh, and the enemy is, is not your wife. The enemy is not your husband. The enemy is not your former friend or your ex. The enemy is not your mom or your dad. The enemy is not your boss. The enemy is not the man. The enemy is not women, the enemy is not those liberals, the enemy is not Trump, the enemy is not Al-Qaeda, the enemy is not America, the enemy is not God, the enemy is not the Bible, the enemy is not religious people or Christians, the enemy. If the enemy for you is anything short of this creature the Bible calls Satan and his minions the Bible calls demons, then you have already fallen for the true enemy's oldest trick. If you think you're too smart to believe in this stuff, you fell for it. If you think you're too sophisticated to believe in the embodiment of evil, the Bible calls Satan, and his home, the Bible calls hell, then you're already halfway in his grasp. And I was there, I'm just speaking from experience, I know what it's like to roll your eyes and look down your nose at that kind of stuff. And it's a trap, it's a trap, Admiral Akbar. it's a trap. And so you've gotta, the nerds are the ones that just laughed. You've gotta know, <laughs> you've gotta know what you're up against and what fight you are fighting. So just let me be very clear and I'll just lay this out. Um, I just feel like I have to say this out loud so you know where I'm coming from. Christians believe in demons that possess people and systems, institutions and governments, right? Christians believe in demonic forces. Christians believe in Satan. Listen, it is um, impossible to take the Bible seriously without believing in demonic forces. You can't just metaphor this stuff away. You know how preachers do sometimes? Well, the original Greek. No, that's not what this is. It either is or it isn't. And you can decide which is more trustworthy, Jesus and the word of God or your own thoughts. And, uh, you know, Jesus uh, especially lays out some examples for us because he doesn't just talk about Satan. He talks to Satan on a couple of occasions. And again, you can take it or leave it. What I want you to see is what Paul writes in Ephesians 6, verse 12, when he says that our struggle is not against flesh and blood but we struggle against the powers of this dark world and the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. This is your enemy. And whatever struggles or fights you're fighting, whoever you've decided you're fighting against, that's not it. They're not the ones. You have another enemy that might use them against you, or he might use you against them, but you need to know who your enemy is is. There's a great story in uh, the New Testament Gospel of Matthew that we're going to explore today. It's one of the stories where Jesus talks to his enemy, Satan. 
And uh, it's in Matthew chapter four. Matthew's the first book of the New Testament. Y'all can open up to it or, or in your study guides. What I'm gonna do is just read this chapter in three sections, and then I'll stop and teach a little bit uh, along the way. But uh, this will give you some idea of the battle that, that I'm describing. So Matthew four, verses one through three is where we'll start. Just a little bit of context, by the way. This is in Matthew chapter four. So the first three chapters of Matthew are, nothing's really happened in terms of Jesus's ministry yet. So Matthew one and two is Jesus's birth and his family tree and the wise men coming to visit. The wise men, magi, whatever. And then um, Matthew three is Jesus's baptism. And it's after the baptism that this event we're about to study today, this wild, crazy, underestimated event takes place. This is a major turning point in Jesus' life. So, Matthew 4. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Okay, he was, I'm going to stop right there. This is not going to be a very long sermon, I promise. Um, Well, maybe. But uh, I'm going to stop here and just say, he was led by who into the wilderness? The Holy Spirit led Jesus into the wilderness. Do y'all, if you have any recollection of the Old Testament, do you remember any other story about people being led into the wilderness? The Exodus, right? Yeah? Who was it that led the people into the wilderness then? Moses, called by who? God, right? So it was God that called the people into the wilderness then. It is the Holy Spirit, who is God, calling the Son, Jesus Christ, into the wilderness here. So, it's God's idea, okay? Jesus wasn't led into the wilderness by the devil. Jesus was led into the wilderness by the spirit to be tempted by the devil. I don't love that word tempted because it's a little bit of an English problem, but like tempted means usually you're tempted to sin, right? If somebody's tempting you with something, they're not tempting you with something good, they're usually tempting you with something bad, right? Tempting someone is tempting them to do something that's bad for them. So uh, I would tempt you if you're giving up Lent or chocolate for Lent, I would tempt you with chocolate. You know, like that's tempting, like it's nefarious. In this story, you're gonna see that the stuff that the enemy offers Jesus isn't bad necessarily. It's kind of good in a vacuum. And so this uh, is really more of a test than it is tempting. And the tempter comes to Jesus uh, after he was fasting 40 days and 40 nights. He was hungry, obviously. The tempter came to Jesus and said, if you are the son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Jesus is hungry. There's, you know, he has the power to turn him into bread. And Jesus answers, it is written, man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Now, First thing you notice here is that the devil has a tactic. He has a scheme, and his scheme is to get Jesus to question his identity. It's to get Jesus to doubt what just happened to him in the Jordan River when John the Baptist baptized him. When the clouds broke open and the voice from heaven said, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased. And now, just moments later, the Jesus goes to the wilderness, and then after he fasts for a while, the devil comes, and the first thing he says, if you are the son of God. And every one of you have had this happen, where you have a deeply spiritual moment, you have something happen to you that just pours assurance over you, and you understand the world and God for the first time in a new way, and you're just so convinced that God is God, and you are the son of God or the daughter of God, and then life happens. And before long, the enemy is putting the same bug in your ear that he's putting in Jesus's in the story. Are you sure? 
Are you sure that really happened? Are you sure it wasn't just a phase? Are you sure it wasn't just a feeling? Are you sure that's just not what you wanted to happen? If you really are the son of God, if you really are a daughter of God, would your life look the way that it looks today? Would your past be what it is? Would your track record be what it is? Would your circumstances be what they are if you really were the son of God? If you really were the daughter of God, right? And so we've all experienced this kind of temptation. All of us, this is a universal experience with this enemy. This is one of his favorite tactics. And Jesus is ready. <laughs> Jesus fires right back at the enemy, not with his own words, but with scripture. And he has memorized uh, portions of Deuteronomy, as one does. <laughs> not really, but Deuteronomy is uh, obscure sometimes. But he's, he actually quotes from Moses' days in Deuteronomy when Moses is leading the people out of Egypt into the wilderness. Do we have Deuteronomy 8? Be careful. This is Moses uh, in, in Deuteronomy. Be careful to follow every command I'm giving you today so that you may live and increase and may enter and possess the land the Lord promised on oath to your ancestors. Remember how the Lord your God led you all the way in the wilderness. The Lord led you in the wilderness these 40 years. Jesus was days. This is years still. The symbolism should be rich and apparent. And the connections should be obvious. To humble and test you. Not tempt you. Test you in order to know what was in your heart. So Jesus was being tested in the moments following his baptism. The enemy wanted to poke and prod and see if maybe there was a chink in the armor, maybe he could get him to question his identity. And uh, we all know uh, what it's like to be tested in this way. All right, this uh, tester, by the way, this enemy, I think it's important to know what things the Bible says about this enemy. There are several designations and names the Bible has for this enemy, um, and I've, I've listed some of them on your study guides and on the screen right now, anything from the snake and Lucifer, the adversary, God of this world, uh, the father of lies, the prince of the power of the air, my goodness, that's a scary one, but he's got all kinds of names and designations. Um, he's mentioned, he and his demons are mentioned over 200 times in scripture and what he wants is death he wants you to hate your, your life and those around you he hates you according to the bible and he has a plan for your life that uh, he would love for you to cooperate with um, this is the enemy the Bible describes. So Matthew 4, 5 to 7, the next few verses of this uh, story we're looking at today. Let's keep digging in. Then the devil took him to the holy city, that's Jerusalem, and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. That's the holiest, highest point of the holiest city. If you are the son of God, again, questioning his identity, getting him to doubt. If you are the son of God, he said, throw yourself down, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you, and they will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Just wait a minute. Did you see what just happened? Were y'all paying attention? You check out. Are y'all on the beach right now? <laughs> what did Satan just do? He quoted the Bible to Jesus. Listen, uh, we've got a lot of new believers in this community. 
people that have never really opened the Bible for themselves very much, people that know kind of what the Bible says, but really what you know is what other people tell you the Bible says. And whenever somebody comes to me and says, I, I kind of like the story, I dig it here, I've been here for a few months, whatever, I, I, there's, you know, there's hot guys here, or whatever, like I hear all kinds of things, and uh, they always want to know what the next steps are, and my answer is always the same, Bible, 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 Bible. You must study the Bible. You must learn the Bible for yourself, because there will come a time of testing, and I see it all the time, you don't have to think very hard for examples of the ways the enemy continues to quote scripture to mislead people who don't know the Bible for themselves. We've all been misled by people quoting scripture to us, telling us the Bible is so-and-so. The Bible is pro-slavery. How can you believe that book? The Bible is anti-women. The Bible hates gay people. The Bible, uh, you know, the God of the Bible only loves some people. Like, it's, it's uh, exclusive. It's judgmental. It's not about love. It's about religion and you know, rules. And, and you've all heard this stuff. And some people have been led astray by the quotes other people give about the Bible. If you don't know it for yourself. Imagine, imagine if Jesus had just been some guy and not Jesus hanging out in the wilderness hungry. And along comes this person that really seems like they know their stuff. Like they're quoting the Bible off the top of their head. Like this is good. Like they seem smart and charming and they've got an apple for me to eat. Like <laughs> anyway, um, the, the idea here is that Jesus would have been lost had he just been a guy that didn't know the Bible. But uh, what it turns into is this like punch counter punch kind of thing. It's this great scene where uh, you see uh, Jesus coming back. Uh, so first of all, the, the spirit, uh, I'm sorry, the, the Satan, the Satan, which is what the Bible actually calls him, the Satan. It's just a term meaning the enemy. Uh, he, he quotes scripture. He's, he says uh, he will command his angels. That's Psalm 91. Beautiful Psalm about trusting God. And then Jesus just claps right back with scripture. It's almost like the comic book battles where Satan's like, pow, 91 Psalm, you know, and then Jesus is like, boom, like it's also written, don't put your trust, I mean, don't put your Lord, your God to the test. Like he quotes from Deuteronomy 6 and like he doesn't take it lying down. He doesn't just assume because this being knows the Bible that this being knows God and that he's speaking truth. He comes back with the truth um, that he knows, and uh, he quotes it uh, boldly uh, to his enemy. All right, so uh, you kind of get the idea, and that's why it's important to know um, the Bible for yourself. We got all kinds of groups and studies and groups and uh, Bible studies and um, small groups, everything. I hope you'll get connected to one and learn what the Bible actually says. The last part of this uh, story here from Matthew 4 is verses 8 through 11, which says again, uh, the, wait, uh, yeah, here we go. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of this world and their splendor. And he said, all this I will give to you. Uh, is the devil lying here, you think? You think the devil had this authority? I think it's just like what we talked about earlier. The devil can do whatever God lets him do. Uh, the devil is not God's equal like uh, the counterpoint to God's light, like the devil is not like the dark version of God. The devil is a creature, a fallen creature whose ego and pride got in the way and he chose rebellion. And he's still in rebellion. And he's thriving uh, on hate. 
And uh, here, uh, it's pretty clear that God has given the devil this authority. Like, we heard the titles for <laughs> Satan earlier, like the prince of the power of the air or whatever. Like, he's the lord of this world, it says at some point in the New Testament. He does have this kind of power to give things, to grant things to people. And this is something that Jesus probably wanted. He came to take over, right? So why wouldn't he want all the kingdoms of the world, right? It's a good thing. Jesus, you know, he could have changed the system from within. <laughs> he could have taken Satan's offer and then turned it all around for good, right? That's how we justify a lot of our decisions. But he doesn't. Jesus said to him, actually, let me give you the second part. If you will bow down and worship me, that's the requisite from Satan. And then Jesus said to him, away from me, Satan, for it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. So Jesus, I sense, is getting a little agitated. He's hungry. He's frustrated. He knows this enemy. And then he says, away from me. And the devil left him. And the angels came and attended to him. All right. So. Uh, the point here is when you resist the devil, he flees. When you know him, when you recognize him, when you resist him, he flees. Jesus' brother James wrote this later. I mean, Jesus taught his little brother this, obviously, because in James's letter in the New Testament, he says, resist the devil and he will flee from you. In James 4, 7. Now, where it gets interesting for me is at the end of this story, at the end of, Mark, of Matthew chapter 4, um, after Jesus' episode with the enemy in the wilderness, Jesus um, begins his ministry. And something radical happens because Jesus goes out, he gives a teaching, gives a sermon, and then Jesus casts a demon out of a guy which I know you've heard is everywhere in scripture. It happens all the time in scripture. That's one of the things that makes Christians weird. I know you've heard this, but this one in Matthew four is the first time in the Bible that a demon is cast out of a person. There are no demons cast out of people in Old Testament times. And this is the first time that it happens. And so what is going on here? Something new, something brand new, something different. Jesus has launched into his revolution his assault against this dark enemy. He has declared war, and he's calling his disciples to this same war. You know, um, later in, uh, in the Gospels, you've probably heard the story where Jesus asks Peter who people say that he is, and then he says, Peter, but who do you say that I am? And Peter says, you're the Messiah, you're the one, and this is like Peter's shining moment, right? Because Peter didn't have a lot of those shining moments. This is his shining moment, and Jesus is like, you're right, Peter, God bless you, and on this rock, I will build my church, and the gates of what? Hell shall not prevail against it. Now, normally, what we envision in artists that have depicted this kind of thing, it's, it's always about the gates of hell coming at us. And the gates of hell won't prevail against the church. Like, we're in a defensive posture. But just think that through for a second. If you've watched as many war movies as I have, it's not very often that your enemy comes at you with a gate. <laughs> a gate is not a weapon. The gate is defensive, right? 
And so Jesus' movement isn't about defending ourselves against this big, bad, evil world. We better build our churches out of brick and keep ourselves safe. And Jesus' movement is about an assault that will overrun the very gates of hell. Jesus' movement is about one day watching as hell becomes Satan's tomb and eternal victory, total victory is declared by Jesus and his followers. Listen, um, I think this is why, it's so frustrating to me sometimes, when the church gets too nice. We're so neutral sometimes. We're so pacifist sometimes. And I, I would rather you come up to me after this and tell me that this is the worst sermon you've ever heard in your life than come up to me and tell me, that was really nice, pastor, thank you. Like, don't tell me this is nice. We're not here to be nice. Sometimes people will be like, what do you do for a living? And I'm like, I'm a pastor. And they're like, isn't that nice? Look at that. Look, on that's just so nice. And I just want to tell them, I want to tell them what I really do for a living. They wouldn't believe me if I told them. In fact, they'd probably never visit my church if I told them <laughs> that I wake up every morning hungry to slay the demons of hell. I wake up every morning <laughs> searching for Satan and his minions as they're manifested in the world around me, calling them out. Squashing them under my foot like I'm, I'm a mystic that way. Like I look at things that way. We have made it all so strange. Like we've made, what have we made exorcism into? A horror movie, right? Like where a priest shows up speaking Latin and throwing water on people. Wasn't what it's supposed to be. What it means to call out a demon is to see darkness working in somebody that you love and naming it. Naming it and praying with them and loving them through it. And calling that demon out until it's gone. You know, it doesn't have to be weird. This is just the fight of our lives. This is the fight that we're all in. And if you don't know it, you're losing it. And so Jesus calls us to wake up to it. That's why we have this story. There were no eyewitnesses in this story. Did you notice? <laughs> the people that wrote the gospels weren't there. It was just Jesus hanging out in the wilderness. Jesus must have come back from that experience and told his followers about it. Jesus wasn't like one of those millennials out in the field, like gazing up at the sky by himself, like on Instagram, you know, when you know there's somebody there with him taking a picture. But they're like, I spent some time alone today. And you're like, no, you didn't. Like, anyway. It's a Gen X complaint right there. We see through that, you know. Jesus came back and reported this to his disciples. Why? The answer is because Jesus knew we would be tested too. In the same way, Jesus knows this enemy and he knows that the enemy is gonna come at us the same way that he came at him, calling us to question our identity. Are you sure? Are you sure you're a child of God? Are you really sure he exists? Are you really sure that he loves you? Are you really sure that you were worth the cross? I see it all the time. I saw it while preparing this sermon. Somebody warned me that when you start preaching on this stuff, you better watch out. Like, you better be prayed up and ready. You better have people praying for you. And I saw it, man. Like, I just, I felt it. And you're going to experience it too if you take all this very seriously. 
And this enemy will come at you like this enemy came at Jesus, telling you you're not enough, telling you you don't have enough, telling you you deserve more, more good things, and you can have those good things if you'll just worship something other than God. So he'll come at you using your appetites against you, your insecurities against you, and if you don't know your enemy, you're defenseless. One of the things that I read in preparation for this series was uh, The Art of War by Sun Tzu, and uh, he's the one that coined the phrase, know thine enemy, or it's kind of where it comes from, is this ancient text on war. He says, if you know your enemy and yourself, you need not fear. If you know yourself but not your enemy, you'll be 50-50 in battle, but if you don't know yourself or the enemy, uh, you will succumb to every fight, Uh, and this is important. And it's not important that you know the enemy so that you will fear him. What I'm calling you to in this series, and I think what the Bible calls us all to, is to be aware but unafraid. Aware, but unafraid. The New Testament says victory has already been won, and we're living in the aftermath of that war, these skirmishes where lives are still at stake, and there's still much to fight for, but the victory is ours. So you need to be aware, but unafraid. All right, Um, the point is to resist and see yourself as a resistance. How does that look in everyday life? Um, Gio and I read to our kids every night and, uh, because we're better parents than you. And, um, (laughs) and um, we have uh, the Action Bible. I highly recommend the Action Bible. It's written like a comic book or whatever. I'm not getting paid to say that or anything. I hope you all know that, but it's a great way to read the Bible to your kids. When you understand the battle we're in, reading your Bible, reading the Bible to your kids takes on a whole new meaning. You're preparing the troops. You're readying the ranks. You're fortifying the foxhole that you're in together by reading the Bible to your kids. When you reach out to your spouse that has given you every reason to resent them, but you refuse to resent them, you resist the enemy. You flee the devil. You call him out in your marriage together. And you're free to love and forgive and not hold resentment. Everything that you do, every facet of your life is about that resistance. You're not called to be nice good little cookie-cutter Christian boys and girls, never, ever be nice or domesticated or institutionalized Christians. We are not called to be neutral in this battle. You, whoever you are, whatever you have in your hands today, you are a warrior called to fight, not with fists and armor and violence, with light and wisdom, confidence in Christ, with his word, with the love of God that outshines every darkness. So I encourage you to live more intentionally, to live with more ferocity, to fight the good fight of light at work, at home, and everywhere in between, to seek the will of God for your life and to know your enemy, to be aware, but never afraid. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for your power. 
that has already won this fight. But as we engage in the skirmish of the aftermath of this war that you've won, we know that much is at stake. I pray for the presence of mind of each person here, that we would wake up in the morning assuming our role as warriors in your rank. God, help us to receive these orders from you to engage in this battle every day, not to be nonchalant about the evil and darkness we see within us or the evil and darkness that we see around us, but to call it out, to call it out and resist it, to pray, to humble ourselves, and to meet hate with love and despair with joy and fear with hope. Thank you, Jesus. It's in your name we pray. Amen.